The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, and I have the pleasure of welcoming into the studio uh, today, by distance, uh, Dr. Scott Redd. Scott, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Zach. My pleasure. Dr. Red serves as president and associate professor of Old Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary's Washington, D.C. campus. He holds degrees from William & Mary, RTS Orlando, and the Catholic University of America, where he completed his doctoral dissertation in the Department of Semitic Language and Egyptian Languages and Literatures. During his doctoral studies, he taught for a time at Fourth Presbyterian Church, EPC, in Bethesda, Maryland, and pastored Christ the King, PCA, in Raleigh, North Carolina. Today, Today, we will be discussing his new book, The Wholeness Imperative, How Christ Unifies Our Desires, Identity, and Impact in the World, published earlier this year by Christian Focus Publications. In the book, Dr. Redd discusses what the Westminster Confession of Faith famously calls a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, experienced by each of us who find our identity in Christ and yet fight against our sinful imperfection. Scott, before I dive into the content of the book, I know that a lot of our listeners are interested in the writing process, either because they're writers themselves or aspiring writers or hope to one day write a book. And uh, I'm sure they're just as curious as I am. What were your motivations behind writing this book, your intended audience, as well as some of the sources that you were drawing from? Working at a seminary and having a bit of like an academic side to your career, you get a lot of options in terms of writing. Um you know, outside of your field. And whenever I do that, whenever I move outside of something related to um, Semitic language, you know, Hebrew, Hebrew poetry, Old Testament theology, when I move outside of that, I think, okay, what's going to really keep my attention and what's going to give me a chance to kind of stretch myself a little bit in a way that I, you know, write in maybe in a way that I wouldn't have normally written before. Um, and so with this book, I was coming off of um, an earlier work that was a highly technical book about the structure of Hebrew poetry, and it was very linguistic. It was an extension of my doctoral work. Um, it was called Constituent Postponement in Biblical Hebrew Verse, and I, I joke that whenever I say that, it's a surefire way to end a conversation that I want to get out of. Um, but, you know, this, you know, it was a very technical topic, and I thought, okay, now if I'm going to write a book-length thing and not something that's more of a chapter-length, I had some chapter-length and article-length things in the meantime, I thought, you know, I really would like to write something that's very not technical, something that kind of speaks to um, a broader audience and yet hopefully engages them uh, in the reading of the Scripture in a way that kind of, you know, shows them something they may have missed, you know, brings together some basic ideas of scripture that they might not have connected before. And actually to be interested, you know, to be honest, when I was, um, re, you know, preparing to write this book, I read a book called how fiction works. It's by, of all people, the New York, I mean, excuse me, the New Yorkers, uh, literary critic, James Wood. And, um, he's a British critic of literature and his style was kind of the one that that inspired me as I was prepping for this one. It was it was kind of a I'd say somewhere in between, you know, you know, low academic and maybe popular intellectual style. And it wasn't a clearly structured book, 
but it did follow some themes and sort of thread them in, in sort of a kind of an organic way. And so that was my guide, really, in terms of putting this together. It was the kind of book that I enjoyed reading. And so I thought, well, let me write that and we'll see what happens. And so um, that's how we ended up with uh, with um, the wholeness imperative. As far as some of the sources that you're drawing from, what I noticed is that in each chapter you have quotations from unlikely uh, literary uh, literary productions from particularly recent modern literature. Um, do you have a background in addition to your your PhD work in Semitic languages and in Hebrew Old Testament poetry? Do you have a background in English literature and composition? Yeah, that was my undergrad. I, I had the the privilege and the uh, <laughs> and the the difficulty of going to a, a sort of classical liberal arts college. I went to William and Mary here in Virginia, and I wanted to be a journalist because I wanted to write and get paid for a living for writing. And um, they didn't have a journalism degree because that was way too modern for William and Mary. So I had to basically take all the English classes and writing classes that they had to offer. And I loved it. I fell in love with literature. I didn't really like literature going into it. Um, I had sort of the typical you know, Tolkien infatuation in junior high and high school that many people I know have. But other than that, I wasn't really into literature until getting to college and then coming out of it, that infatuation kind of continued. And as a matter of fact, it even guided the way that I did my PhD. I was I was at seminary at the time and I was studying under people like Richard Pratt and Bruce Waltke and, and Mark Futado and others, and they were showing how the Bible can be read not only for its theological wealth, but also for its literary composition and the fact that I could bring these two loves together, you know, reading the Bible in a literary way was really what kind of pushed me on to do my PhD in, in um, classical Hebrew poetry. So, yeah, I do have that background. And I did when I was looking for quotes starting to start each chapter. I, I, I sort of went to the quotes that I was thinking of as I was writing the chapters. And, yeah, some of them are not your typical uh, you know, Christian devotional quotes. Well, that's okay. All truth is God's truth, right? That's what we like to say. But I enjoyed reading the book to our listeners. I'll get this out of the way now. I'll probably say it again later. I recommend the book to you. I think it's a a great piece of writing, as well as uh, being highly devotional and useful, profitable for your spiritual life. And you might think that I'll say that about every book, and that's not the case. I'll say it about every book that appears on the podcast, because I like it. But I get sent some books, and I read them, or I skim them at least. And I'm like, yeah, not going to interview that author. Uh, That wasn't the case with this one. This is an excellent uh, collection of of chapters that I think accomplish the aim of the book. And we'll we'll get into that, I guess, right now as we dive into the content. Scott, you open the book with a highly personal account of your teenage self struggling to reconcile newfound Christian identity with dreams that replayed, quote, sundry carnalities, such as high-speed car chases and shootouts and things like that that you mentioned. Why was this struggle so significant in that season immediately after your conversion? And what does it have to do with the central message or purpose of the book? I was raised in a Christian family, and my, my family, you know, when I was a child, they were not sophisticated in their Christian theology or their understanding of Scripture. That developed over time. My father is now a ruling elder in a PCA church up here in the Northern Virginia area. Um, but I was raised in a Christian family, and there was early Reformed influence 
uh, particularly by one Navy chaplain uh, who is now in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he really planted some seeds in our family that that came to bear later in my life. Um, I would say that I, I was a Christian as a child, and yet during high school, I had drifted away really because of complacency. And that's one of the things that draws me to the Old Testament and uh, the teachings of the prophets, which is what I get to teach here at, at seminary. You know, the prophets are often interacting with these complacent Judahites and Israelites who, while they've been given the blessings of the covenant and are participating in worship, yet find themselves, you know, um, backsliding, uh, becoming complacent, becoming hypocritical in their faith and their worship. And that's kind of where I went in high school. So that's the backdrop to this opening of the book. I have just come back to the faith in sort of a powerful, even experiential way of, of come back to the faith of my youth. It was so powerful that for eight or nine years afterwards, I said that I was converted. Um, but looking back now and having a deeper understanding of covenant and you know spiritual formation, um, I do think that I came back to the faith of my youth. And yet because I'd been raised as a Christian and yet had this period of real darkness in my life, I was wondering – am I really a Christian? Is it, is it for real this time? You know, it did, did it really take? And I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of those early years, and this is really between the ages of 17 and probably 26, you know, really trying to find how do I, you know, how do I connect this thing that's happened inside to the life around me outside? And I came up with these odd and somewhat silly diagnostics. And, and one of them was, you know, if I was in a dream, I was having a dream and I was in a shootout. And I think I comment in the book that as a kid who grew up in suburban America, being in shootouts wasn't a common experience, but, um, uh, I, it was it was in my dream life, and I would ask myself, okay, did I pray during the shootout, or or when something horrible is happening, like I'm driving my car off a cliff? Again, something that happens with alar alarming, you know, regularity in my dreams. You know, I'm driving off of a cliff. Am I praying? Am I asking the Lord to help me? Am I trusting in the God of my salvation? And that for me became a kind of diagnostic for my faith. And it was in that space, that kind of frenetic search for. I think what we'd call assurance of faith, where I started to discover this biblical idea of wholeness and of surrendering to God and of turning to him and, and, and you know, offering up my body and my life wholly to him. That ties into my next comment that, com that flows out of this opening chapter. You, you claim that, quote, wholeness is something that is true of a person and something that is pursued by a person, end quote. Unpack this statement for us and connect it to your themes of identity and surrender that you were just digging into. The idea in this and throughout the book and the one that I've kind of tried to thread throughout is that we can talk about what our Christian salvation is for. You know, what what is it unto? What is the work? And obviously, you can come at this from a variety of different perspectives. You know, my I'm an ordained Presbyterian teaching elder, and so I know that in a way, our salvation is for the glory of God and enjoying Him forever. That's one way to talk about it. We could talk about it in terms of conquering sin if we want to approach it from a from the position of uh, of the early chapters of Genesis. We can say it's the victory of the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. There's a lot of ways we can come at this. And yet one of the ways that I found very helpful, and I don't hear discussed as much in certain Christian circles, is this idea of, of wholeness, of being made whole, you know, being made 
the kind of people God intended for us to be when he made us, when he created humanity in his image back there in the garden, recognizing that even there, the, the, the work was not yet complete. We were waiting for uh, a time to come. Um, so the idea that we've been saved unto wholeness um, can be articulated just like any of our other salvific blessings you know, in terms of what we've already attained in Christ what we've attained, what's been imputed upon us, what's been reckoned to us, and also what we desire, what we seek. You know, and we hear this talked about when we talk about our holiness, for instance, as a Christian, you've been made holy, you've been sanctified and consecrated, set aside so that Paul can write to the Corinthians, you are all saints. And yet, as we read the letters to the Corinthians, we realize, wow, these are these folks are, are struggling with some pretty significant issues. And yet Paul calls them all saints. You know, so they've been consecrated and set aside. So therefore, go be holy, right? Go go pursue holiness. And the same is true of wholeness. Um, there's a sense in which in our justification in Christ, in our adoption, in our definitive sanctification, we've been made whole in him. This is I, I would tie to to um to Paul's language of regeneration, that if anyone is in Christ, behold. You know, that person is breathing the fresh air of the new heavens and the new earth. He is new creation. And yet we're striving towards that through the power and the grace of God. We're striving to live out that wholeness, to repent out of our fragmentation and dividedness that comes from sin. So that idea of already not yet, which is commonly worked out in justification, worked out in sanctification, worked out in glorification, those ideas um, – you know, also has an application in wholeness uh, that we've attained it, that we are in Christ, that the prayer of the Son to the Father, that we would be one as the Father and the Son are one, has been answered, and yet we're also living unto its fulfillment, its consummation, as we might say. It's it's very similar to me uh, in, in my thinking, especially referencing the high priestly prayer there, that uh, to that apex, what John Murray calls the apex of our salvation, that is our adoption. You know, Amen. orphans, yeah. uh, one of the frequent uh, themes of orphan experiences, and we see it in popular uh, iterations like Annie, the, the musical, or or in, in, in books uh, like various Charles Dickens books and things, the orphan lives a fragmented existence. Um, the, the orphan is lacking a, a, a whole identity because there, there's no parent there, there's no, there's no guide, there's no loving mentor. But once adopted and brought into a loving home, the orphan's identity is, is shored up. In Christ, and then for us, spiritually speaking, our identities are shored up in Christ as we're united to Him in our effectual calling, and yet in our lives, in the process of sanctification, that's more and more borne out and made evident and, and made clear, and even uh, we're assured of God's love for us over time. It's not always uh, immediate there at the beginning. Absolutely. And throughout, you know, it's interesting you brought up sonship because, you know, throughout the Bible, this theme of sonship comes up, and you're absolutely right. Sonship is a big part of the picture, and yet it, I'd even argue it's it's getting at one of the aspects of wholeness. So sonship in the Old Testament is really inextricably tied to covenant. You know, covenants make families, and when God enters into covenant with his people, he refers to them, and this was common ancient Near Eastern practice, you know, he refers to them as family members. And it, usually in the Old Testament, it's a father-son relationship. And yet as the prophets 
come along down the road, Jeremiah, particularly in Hosea, use the husband-wife language too. It's another way of getting at the same covenantal relationship. And, you know, if you look at uh, the Lord calling Moses to bring Israel out of Egypt, you know, remember what he says. He says, go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him come out to the wilderness and worship me. That's the conceit behind the 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 beginning, at least, of the of the Exodus event that's going to later, of course, amplify because of um, uh, because of Pharaoh's unbelief and his hardness. But, you know, even there you have Israel being set aside to be God's son. And what what happens? What are they called to now as their God's son, as they're called to be God's son? Well, you go to Deuteronomy 6, and this is really the, the thesis for the book. Deuteronomy 6, where you get this this summary of the law, the Ten Commandments have just been restated in Deuteronomy 5. Moses goes now and he sort of gives this summary, this overview of how they ought to live. And he says, listen, God is our God. He's our covenant God. And he's unlike all of the other gods because he's whole, right? He's he's one. Richard Bauckham, and his, actually in his commentary on John, when he talks about the high priestly prayer, he rightly makes this point about the Shema, and he's one of the few authors I've seen who connect John 17 to Deuteronomy 6. But he's highlighting this idea that God's character is whole, and he's ours in covenant. And so as a result, we ought to live in the same way as his sons, his firstborn sons. Okay, think of the Israelites, you know, on the steps of Moab, listening to Mo, Mo, Moses preach. As we respond, we're supposed to respond like in, in like manner. We're supposed to love him, but not just love him covenantally. We're supposed to love him with all of our heart and with all of our self and with all of our strength. And that's that's really a mosaic covenant expression of this kind of wholeness that we see threaded throughout the whole of Scripture. We see covenantal contours. We see filial contours. These are some of the grand themes of our salvation and of redemptive history. You also tap into in the book uh, a grand theme of Western philosophy, and that is the idea of being and becoming. What does this particular theme, its philosophical outworking even, profound even if nowadays very popularized philosophical trope, have to do with wholeness in a biblical sense. I will say, because of course it's, it's, it was always a battle with the, with the publishers as to how things get worked out. I love the title. I love the, uh, the final, um, the final uh, uh, you know, product. Um, but my original title was Being and Becoming. I really wanted to emphasize that idea even more. Um, and I think they rightly drew me towards more towards the Deuteronomy 6 language with the wholeness imperative. Um, but I would have liked it because this book came out right, I think the same month of Michelle Obama's book came out, which is called Becoming. So I could have maybe you know enjoyed some of the sales revenue of people buying the wrong book. Um, but in any case, yeah, you're right. I, I, I like that language of being and becoming because I think it – you know, it, it separates us maybe from some of the language that we get so used to using in terms of our salvation, which is good. It's good to have familiar t- terms and familiar, t- you know, language and jargon. And yet, I think it can help us draw attention to maybe, you know, a, a larger category or pattern in understanding what we've been saved from and the nature of our salvation, what we what we've been saved to. And it's a it's it's language that actually Bavink, Herman Bavink, the great Dutch systematic theologian uses in a good bit of his writing, but I, I quote a particular article where he's actually basically delineating some denominational differences 
uh, in the church in the Netherlands, you know, in the 19th century. But he's it's it's a very parochial article that I cite in this book, which is odd given the sort of general broad audience of the book. But he has this really interesting chapter where he says, and this is the difference between Reformed theology and everybody else. And he says it has to do with being and becoming. You know, some people just do being, some people just do becoming. We emphasize the being. We emphasize what is in the Reformed tradition. We emphasize God, the transcendent truths. We emphasize you know, the, 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 the aseity of God, the simplicity of God. We, we emphasize the being, but we don't ignore the becoming. The becoming is there as well. But it's just, you know, it, 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 you have to keep both of these in balance. You have to keep these sort of in, you know, in tension. And I think this is true. I think this is helpful for the Christian life. Um, we have believers out there who are emphasizing the change. I mean, even today, especially today, maybe in this world of, of you know, uh, social media and, and, and social justice and online shaming and mass shaming and, and all of this push for change, which is, I would say, at its core, there's, there's, there, there, this is definitely an aspect of, of the gospel faith. And yet, at the same time, we can't forget the who you are. We can't forget the reality of God's presence, of His rule and His reign. We can't we can't throw out the ex- existence for the essence, as it were, or the you know the activity for the identity. Um, we have to keep these things in balance. And, and the Bible recognizes these distinctions between being and becoming, and, and really does speak to both categories in the Christian life and in the broader life of the world. When we think of the core concept laying behind our salvation or, or really at the heart of, of our soteriology, um, even in reform circles, you have some that want to put justification uh, there at, at the heart of soteriology, um, but I think that maybe overemphasizes being, whereas I right. think the, the more proper or appropriate concept at the heart of, of biblical soteriology is union with Christ, out of which flow justification, adoption, and sanctification, and, and all the other benefits that accompany or flow from, from them. And union with Christ, in my mind, uh, holds up both being and becoming in not equal tension, but with equal regard that, yes, there's a, there's a status change there, but it's also a, a change of a vivification where our lives mm-hmm. uh, progressively will change in time as our union with Christ is, is more and more uh, reflected Amen. in our behavior and worked out. You know, our salvation is worked out with fear and trembling after all. And I think so many of the problems and really a lot of the, the, the heresies that we run into today in the church and the, and the error is because of people not recognizing the full extent and application of our union with Christ. I absolutely agree. My students get tired of me taking them back to union with Christ to answer questions because I do think it actually does solve uh, it, it solves some of these false dichotomies that we're presented with out there in the world. I mean, I think it solves without going too in depth. I mean, in terms of new perspective on Paul, I think we can find the error in the new perspective, all of its worst parts, and we can enjoy all the best things about it. Um, through something like the doctrine of the union with Christ, you know, and I and I think actually N.T. Wright at least has begun to acknowledge that 
as well um, as he's sort of uh, you know backpedaled away from some of his earlier positions. I haven't been up on N.T. Wright in the middle of my uh, ancient church history class and Hebrew exegesis class and other things that I'm that I'm on now, but you're absolved. <laughs> <laughs> Some of our listeners might be listening to this conversation thinking, wow, these guys are getting really deep into the weeds really fast. This is a pretty heady— I just did. I acknowledge that I just did that on my own about two seconds ago, so I apologize for that. Oh, it's good. No apologies required. As you said to me, you're absolved, brother. But (laughs) is is wholeness and the way we think of Christian wholeness a purely intellective virtue? Does it demand an active response? And and what foundational text of Scripture helps us to see the answer? You've mentioned the Shema. How can we open up uh, that a bit more? And then finally— I think this is important to throw in there as well, since we're both representing seminaries. Should everyone pursue seminary training in order to really get what it means to be whole in Christ? Well, the answer to your second question is absolutely. Everyone should attend seminaries. No, I'm kidding. um, (laughs) But I'll give that. I'll try not to give a long answer to that question because I think it's a really important one. Um, Yes, there does need to be active response to wholeness. Um, I would say if there's no active response to the wholeness that you have attained in Christ, then you may want to pray the prayer of the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's a hurtful way in me. Lead me in your everlasting way. If, if you're not actively seeing fruit to your labor and this, or fruit to your faith, and this gets back to that early issue that I was wrestling with you know, at football camp at the beginning of the book, which is um, you know, how do I actually see this faith have legs in the world around me? And you're expected to. I mean, the common agrarian metaphor throughout the Old Testament really is vegetation, usually some kind of tree, you know, and the idea of the tree being planted on a river or on a stream of water, and that even when the drought comes, in other words, even when life becomes difficult, that tree still has green leaves. In other words, it's still bearing the the or giving expression to the vibrance and the life that it has because it's founded on the Word of God. And the Word of God is never in the Old Testament merely sort of theological inventory or biblical, you know, uh, kind of listing biblical propositions and that sort of thing. You know, the Word of God, you know, read the psalmist, read Psalm 119 and see how he talks about the Word of God. The Word of God and meditating on it, delighting in it, means really being steeped in the character and the salvation that God has afforded his people. Um, so if you are one of those, if you are one of those in whom new creation has taken root through the power of the Spirit and the effectual calling uh, in Scripture, if you're one of those people who's united with Christ, for you know, for whom Christ prays, let them be one as you, Father, and I are one, so that the world may know they're about our love and their love. Um, you know, as if you're one of those people, then it has to find expression in your life. And I think we find different camps in the Christian life as to what that expression should look like. You know, there's a there's a certain pietistic camp that focuses on personal holiness. Um, I do think there's probably a transformational camp that focuses on public wholeness and social justice. I would argue that both are present in biblical teaching. Um, you know, both the idea of personal and individualistic righteousness and public righteousness. Actually, in Hebrew, there's two different words, tzedek and uh, tzedakah, and they seem to sort of correspond to those two different kinds of righteousness, and we're called to both. So 
it, it, we're, we're, this should absolutely find root. As a matter of fact, James, you know, the, in his letter writes that if it doesn't find root, if, if you're not seeing fruit from your faith, you may want to go back again, like I said, and, 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 and return and check on the authenticity of your faith. While recognizing, of course, and it always needs to be said, none of these things, none of, none of these forms of righteousness earn for you or merit for you your salvation. It is wholly and unilaterally applied uh, in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Spirit. So I think we need to be careful not to focus on the being so much that we ignore the becoming, focus on the essence that we have in Christ that we forget the existence that we're called to as Christians. And yet likewise, because that would be antinomianism, likewise not focus so much on the uh, on the becoming that we forget the being, that we actually think that we're making ourselves whole, that we're making ourselves justified by our activities. And those are the dangers we have to keep in mind, of course. And this is this has been for me, I think, the the, the center of the racket for the Reformed tradition. We've been really good. Praise God. Um, we've been really great at, I think, articulating and keeping these two in front of us. Um, but I think we, just like everyone, including the Catholic Church that many in our tradition were responding to, we have to always keep in mind um, you know, the balance, the biblical balance that we're called to. Now, secondarily, in terms of seminary, uh, I think it's a really great question. I think, you know, in short, I would, I would say I think more people need to go to seminary than are currently going. And yet at the same time, I don't think this is something that everyone needs to do. Um, some of the most, I think, faithful, humble, merciful people, Christians I've met, never set foot inside of a seminary. Um, and yet I would say there's there's something about studying God's Word in, in the kind of depth that you would at a Greenville or at an RTS or at a Westminster or at a Covenant or, you know, at a Gordon-Conwell. There, there's, there's something about studying the Word of God at that kind of depth that I think will appeal to many more Christians than – might 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 think you know they are appeal to more Christians than might than we might expect, partly because I think we think of seminary as a highly sort of ivory tower endeavor, and we miss the fact that you're really learning about the lover of your soul, the, your King Jesus, your your Creator, your Savior, and this is the person, this is the God who has saved you. And why would you not want to study and know him more deeply? You know, I use the example in my class of, you know, if you were to talk to one of our students and he said, well, um, I just need to tell you how much I love my wife. And I said, well, tell me about your wife. You know, and, this, and imagine the student saying, well, I don't, I don't really know a whole lot about her. I don't go for all that intellectual stuff. I just love her, you know. And I said, well, well you know, what's, what's her birthday? He said, I don't really, I don't go for all those facts. You know, I don't go for all of that, you know cognition and rationalistic stuff. I just love her, right? You know, at some point you'd probably say, I don't think you love your wife as much as you think you love your wife, right? Um, you know, the church provides opportunity for us to grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. Um, the, uh, the seminary offers us, I think, an opportunity to grow in a way that's really without, you know, that's without comparison, you know, elsewhere in, in this modern life. And so I see our students come and even the ones who are going to go on and be lay teachers, they're going to be Bible study leaders, they're going to be moms who are just raising up their kids or working in the local schools. We have a variety of different kinds of students coming to RTS. And I, I know you all do as well. And 
it's just amazing to see them learn and delve deeply into the scriptures and to see just how it goes from it's like watching a TV show in black and white and then watching it in color and then watching it in high def and then watching it like in, I don't know, wherever you go next, you know, 3D curve screen or something like that. It's just as you delve more deeply into scripture, you get to really enjoy the the complexity and the beauty and the mosaic of redemptive history. And uh, I think it just makes yeah, it makes for a better, more fulfilled Christian life. I think that's a great answer to to a question that could easily be a throwaway of, no, not everyone should get seminary training to really get it. Um, I think you gave a, a good balance, or a yes, everyone should should send money to RTS in Greenville and take classes. Come on down. Um, I think you gave a really good balanced um, answer well, You didn't ask me if everybody should send money. Yes, everyone should send money. That is definitely true. <laughs> You're talking to a seminary president and a director of admission or advancement yeah. at a different seminary. We are never going to discourage anyone from giving to good right. seminaries pursuing Reformation in the church today. But what I would seriously say, based on experience, maybe anecdotal experience here, um, I think most people know that you know 85-plus percent of our students are in the Divinity Program. They are men preparing for ordained ministry in the PCA, the OPC, the ARP, the RCUS, the RPCNA, you name it, the Bible Presbyterian Church, whatever. Um, but we do have a strong cohort of men and women who are here for other reasons, and some of them are in degree programs, and then a lot of them are auditing or taking a special class Um the the wives of some of our students sit in on classes for free. So there are different uh, vehicles here, some that cost money, some that don't. All of them cost time and, and intellectual energy, uh, an investment in reading and engaging in conversation. But even if you just took one class, if, if you live close to a seminary or if you want to try your hand at distance education, I know there's a lot of free resources now from RTS, and we're putting up more from Greenville as well on the internet where you can go through a course or audio from an old course. Uh, I, would, I would encourage you to at least stretch your mind and to try your hand at it. Uh, do you need it? No, you don't need it. What you need are the ordinary means of grace. But is it helpful? Yes, I think it can be helpful, especially if you're the kind of learner who benefits from guided reading and, and writing papers that you know are going to be graded and held accountable and um, and listening to lectures. Back, back to the book, though, you, you relate the word with Psalm 119 as your primary source text, to the Christian sojourn through this life by showing how Scripture provides the aim, aid, defense, and delight of the Christian life. I liked that fourfold breakdown. And the first full paragraph on page 42 spells this out when you write this, quote, followers of God are sojourners setting out on a dangerous journey, one that promises to challenge us along the way. But through God's word, Our real home reaches out to touch us. God's word whispers to us of another country, and with the psalmist we long for it. Like a hungry man longs for nourishment on the journey, like a weakened traveler asking, tell me about my home, end quote. How is this sojourn in already not yet reality? I I focused on Psalm 119 because it, it, um, I think probably more than any other discrete section of the Old Testament, it does really establish this idea of the Torah, of course. Now, this is not just the Ten Commandments or the Pentateuch or, or the Mosaic Law, but in at least in Psalm 119, it's used really to talk about the whole of God's Word, um, that the, the Word of God or the, the instructions of God have this 
personalistic element to them. Uh, and, and the psalmist intuits. It's interesting if you read how he talks about the the word. You know, he talks about waking up at night and the word is there to comfort him. He talks about being on a journey and the word standing there to protect him. He, you know, he talks about the word calling him and sort of you know, pulling him forward, almost like you know the letter of a wife to a a, a soldier who's off at war, saying, "Come home." Get home safely, kind of thing. It's it's this really interesting personalistic account of how God's word works. And I would actually argue that what the psalmist is intuiting there is something that we see explicitly stated in passages like John 1 1, okay, where in the beginning is the word. And I know that's often been tied to Greek philosophy, but I think some later interpreters, and I think probably rightly so, are connecting it more actually to Old Testament theology, words like Devar and others that get at the idea of God's word, his act, his presence in the world being, you know, Jesus, as it were, Jesus being the perfect, um, you know, the perfect expression of the Godhead. Okay, the exact imprint of the Godhead dwelling bodily, that kind of language, you know, uh, really picking up that intuition that we see in the Old Testament uh, in passages like Psalm 119. So if you read Psalm 119, it does read like a sojourn psalm, and we have some other psalms like this, like the Psalms of Ascent as well, where you have these sojourn psalms where the, the person is depicted as going towards somewhere, some goal, usually the sanctuary, Probably in Jerusalem, it might have been even psalms that were recited or sung by um, uh, you know, people who were uh, on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the festivals, and that had become a kind of metaphor or analogy for the life of faith. And of course, this isn't already a not yet thing. Of course, we we can you know, existentially we feel the pilgrimage side of it. Um, even in the Christian life today, for those who are united with Christ, we, we know that we're being drawn towards him. We're, we're, we're leaning forward, you know, to use another popular phrase. We're leaning into our eschatological calling towards the new heavens and new earth. And yet we have to acknowledge that we are already, to use the Pauline language again, we're already new creation. The, the spiritual man, the, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of sonship, as you brought up earlier, already dwells within us. Okay, We've already attained, and yet we're leaning towards attaining the end of our pilgrimage. And I think that is, is how the word, which is, which is sort of the way in which the Lord reveals himself in the pilgrimage and reveals the salvation that we've um, that, that we've received in Christ, the Word of God provides for us not only sort of the end game, like where are we heading towards? New heavens and new earth, glory of God eternally. When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. You know, th that idea of our new heavens and new earth, resurrected life, that's what we're being drawn towards, and yet we're being fed along the way through the Word. It's, it's spiritual nourishment through the preached Word in church, in the congregation, gathering together in both reading and responding in prayer. Um, and yet it's also a defense. It pr protects us. And we get into, I get into this later in the book when I talk about Jesus and the gospel as being presented as a kind of light that, that protects us from the things of the darkness. And, but it's not merely that. It's not merely our goal and it's not merely our aid and it's not merely the thing that protects us, but it's also actually the joy of our hearts. And I think that's the part where we where we really need to wrestle today in the in the Christian life 
particularly in the West, with the idea of the gospel and the word of God and the person of Christ being our delight, the thing that not only nourishes us intellectually and rationally, but nourishes us volitionally and emotionally as well. So we have it, we've attained it, and yet we're also pushing towards it. What are some counterfeit aims, aids, defenses, and delights that tend to tear us away from Christ and His Word and tempt us off of the the right path of sojourning uh, that God has laid out for the Christian believer, the, the way of righteousness, so to speak? You know, I get at this a little bit um, in that chapter 2 in Jeremiah where I talk about you know, the talismans or um, faithful superstition, and I think there's a lot of overlap there. Obviously, one of the answers is, is idolatry. Um, that's kind of an ancient way of putting it. I think the terms idols and idolatry are still active enough in English today that we know a little bit about what that means. Um, one of the definitions I would use is anything, anything apart from Jesus that give you a sense of comfort, convenience, or security. I mean, anything, whether that's wealth, whether that's pleasure, whether that's reputation— um, whether that's a sense of public righteousness or faithfulness. Um, I think particularly today, again, you know, with the, uh, we, we live in a world right now where, where virtue signaling is very popular. And one of the things that go along with that is that if you virtue signal in the right way, it doesn't actually matter what you personally maybe believe or do, as long as you've signaled in the right direction, then you, um, you know, you you can find the sort of relief or the or the the, the the comfort and the security and the convenience that you want from that. And I think we have to all be careful of this. This goes all the way back to Christ with the Pharisees, who are putting forth a kind of public, um, you know, public-looking righteousness, and yet he says it's covering over an unbelief that really renders you not only unrighteous but unclean. You know, I mean, the idea of the of the Pharisees being whitewashed tombs for dead men's bones isn't just saying you know, Jesus isn't just saying that they're dead on the inside or something. He's saying you present yourselves as if you're ceremonially clean, but because you have carcasses in you, and everyone knows a carcass renders you unclean. You know, because you have that within you, you're actually unclean and not appropriate for the sanctuary of God. You know, and I think we often in Western world and not, you know, replace our, our faith or, um, replace, you know, the gospel with things that seem righteous and seem worthwhile and even have a sort of camouflage. And yet, um, you know, and that can be political activism or that can be yeah, being an upstanding citizen, uh, you know, who gives generously to philanthropies or something like that. And yet, it can really cover over an inner deficit uh, of faith. And so um, the problem is, and what I try to point out in this, in this chapter from Psalm 119, is that these, these false aims and false aids and false defenses and false delights, they kind of work to a certain extent. You know, you really can, uh, you can work the system in such a way that you might even feel fulfilled at any given point. And yet that's kind of the danger in them, too. And I, I, I close that chapter with this ex, with this story that I won't go totally into here, but it really struck me. It was about a guy who was, who was in a plane crash off the coast of Costa Rica, and he was trying to swim his way into shore. And he, 
he has this terrible night of, of sharks and jellyfish and everything, but he ends up on a log and he finally gets to this log and he, he can float on this log and he even notices that the log's floating towards shore. And it seems like it's taking him into his salvation, as it were. And as the sun comes up the next morning, he realizes that he's now being pulled away from shore and it's because the tide's going out. Whereas before the tide was going in, he thought he was going to float right up to the beach, but actually he sees he's just going back and forth with the tide. And he realizes that if he stays on the log, he's going to die. So he has to get off the log and actually swim toward the shore. And that's the thing about these, these false senses of aim and aid and defense and delight. They seem to work, and that's what's kind of tricky about them. And so you realize that they're actually not taking you anywhere, and you're not on the pilgrimage anymore. That illustration of the swimming man swimming for his life and finding a log, when I read that, I remember thinking, man, that, that'll preach. Um, but the, the trick is Thank the Lord for IT band stretches. That was the only reason I was watching this show. I was sitting there with my leg up and ice on it from having run out my IT band. Well, the beautiful thing about you getting to watch the show that gives you this anecdote is you can probably use it in a pulpit effectively. But if I were to try to use that as an illustration from the pulpit, it would come out all unnatural because I'd be like, yeah, I was reading this book uh, where this guy who saw this documentary about this dude with this log and swimming and people would be like, what are you going on about? But that is... I'll find the YouTube link and then you can just report it first person. There you go. That's good. (laughs) I'll still give you credit if I ever say it from the pulpit. Um, (laughs) You you highlight this, and it actually relates to something that you you said a couple minutes ago, um, that God wants all of us. He doesn't just want our our mental or intellectual assent. He wants our affections, our desires, our wills, our volition. He wants all of it. It all needs to be inclined toward Him and His purposes. And when we go to the Word, um, there is a right way to approach Scripture, and there is a wrong way to approach Scripture. Just just picking up the Bible and reading it um, really doesn't do uh, justice what the Christian duty or responsibility or privilege is when we approach the Word of God. And you give three postures that we need to that we need to take when we open up the Word of God and, and go to it, seeking guidance, encouragement, uh, admonition, and, and, and comfort, and, and all the various things that it provides to us. Uh, what are those those three postures that we need to adopt, and why is each of them so important? This idea of going to the Scripture merely to sort of, sort of glean theological truth is not a bad idea. And listen, if you're not doing that, I want to encourage people to do that, to go to the Scripture and recognize that it is telling us about God and about our lives and about what we must do to glorify Him, and that is an important aspect of Scripture. And yet we also have to remember that when we're coming to the Scriptures, we're we're coming to it in a subordinate fashion. We're coming underneath Scripture, and we're letting it change us. We're not going to Scripture as we would to any other text um, that that we're going to interact with in our lives, where we would go and probably glean some useful things and leave other things aside or, or come and judge the judgments of the authors. In the case of Scripture, we have to always remember that we're coming before our King, and so we are hearing the words of the King. And I, I encourage my students in this way by saying, be careful about reading the Scripture 
with an apologetic stance all the time. And, th- and this is something, particularly in Washington, D.C., this is a, a sort of intellectual town. There's always interesting debates going on around here, and people are, are constantly defending the faith and out there interacting with atheists and agnostics and New Age folks, and you name it, okay? And so there, there's this tendency, if you're in that world, to read the Bible constantly in this defensive stance, kind of like, well, how would I explain this? Well, how would I explain this? Now, that's a great way to read God's Word, but it can't be the only way that you read God's Word. You have to also read God's Word devotionally. Sometimes just give in, if you know what I mean. And by, by sometimes, I mean all the time. <laughs> um, you come in and recognize that you're receiving the words of the King, okay? If, if you know, we would treat a human in this manner, if, if you were drowning at sea and a man rowed his boat out and threw you a life preserver and saved you and pulled you in the boat and you said, thank you. And he said, it's my pleasure. I wanted to, I wanted to save you. You wouldn't go, well, I'm not so sure about that. Right? You, you wouldn't instantly question this person's intentions because this person has just saved you, right? How much more the God of the universe who has created us and drawn us to him and sanctified us and set us aside, how much more does he, does he deserve all honor and all authority and all glory? So one thing, when we're reading the Word, we need to come in with this subordinate stance. Let it change us. Don't go in with criticisms about it, okay? And I think it's easy for us to ignore texts that we don't agree with. We, we often know enough not to disagree openly with the Bible, but we'll just ignore the passages that we don't agree with because it's too hard and it asks too much of us. And yet also, um, I would say we need to also come before God's Word and recognize that it is God's personal word to us. Um, I, I'm, I'm an Old Testament scholar, and so I, I deal with a lot of ancient Near Eastern scholars. And if I go to the Society of Biblical Literature, I'm, I'm sitting in rooms often with a large number of unbelievers, a number of believers, a number of Jewish scholars. And there's this sort of academic sophistication about the book, and, and we talk about what the text of the of the Bible says, and we, we talk about original meaning and the author and the audience and compositional histories and all of these things, many of which I completely would completely reject. But one thing that you notice in terms of the tone of the conversation is there's this clear distance between the readers and the text itself. And I think sometimes, particularly in intellectual communities, in places like cities where you have colleges and they're down in Greenville, you have, you've got Furman down the road and you've got this academic community. There, there can be a sense of, of sophistication and distance from the text that is actually very damaging, I think, to the individual Christian believer. We have to remember this is God's word for us, right? This is, this is God's word to me and to my people, this is not just God's word to the Israelites in the late second millennium BC on the steps of Moab about to go into the conquest. Now it is that, but it's also for me. Then how do I know that? Because Jesus and the apostles read it that way, right? You know, the, Jesus is my rabbi. He's showing me how to t- read the Bible. And one of the things that I notice is that when he looks to the Old Testament, he finds it being about him. Then when Paul looks to the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, but when Paul's looking at the Old Testament scriptures, he says these are about us. You know, Abraham's salvation is about our salvation, right? And and the people, the heroes of the faith of the Old Testament 
are about our people. They're about my people. Samson's one of my people, says Paul. Excuse me, excuse me uh, says, the, says the author of, of Hebrews, rather. Um, <laughs> but, but Paul would say the same. Yeah, and that's the, I'm, not, I'm not making an argument about authorship of Hebrews. Um, you know, but Paul would say the same as well, right? So he, he sees a direct connection between those ancient writers and their audiences and his contemporary writer. He is a contemporary writer and his audience, and we should be doing the same ourselves, recognizing this is not just an ancient text, but this is a personal text for me living in 21st century Washington, D.C. This is God's revelation to me. Amen. Amen. And that is why in in preaching, when we corporately sit under the ministry of the Word, we corporately and personally come under it, not only to, to receive an exposition and to apprehend the truth in an intellectual way, but also to uh, to have it applied to us by the preacher. And faithful preachers around the world, that is their job, to explain the text and to be instructive, but also to apply the text and to be exhortative and, and hortatory, especially when, when the text calls for that. Let's talk about pious superstition, shall we? Uh, chapter 3 was a lot of fun to read for me. It, it looks like it was based on a sermon recorded in Jeremiah 7, in which Jeremiah recalls the events surrounding the tabernacle being at Shiloh, and to which Jesus refers during a visit to Jerusalem in his own earthly ministry. And uh, and what we see is that the people of Israel um, treat the tabernacle as some kind of lucky charm or talisman. There's a pious superstition about what they do. I'll, I'm going to leave that. That's something I want our potential readers listeners to the podcast to go pick up the book and read what I mean by pious superstition, but I think they could even get a feel for what we mean by it now if they're familiar at all with the, uh, the, the, the biblical account there in Jeremiah and Christ's words regarding it. But what are some particularly trenchant pious superstitions for which we ought to be on the lookout today, even in our Christian circles, but, but even in popular culture as well? Yeah, that, you know, when Jeremiah talks about the temple— he says, you know, we have the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. These are deceitful words, he calls them. And yet, of course, the words themselves are not deceitful. They're sort of ob- obviously true, right? So the, the people who see Babylon coming across the countryside, threatening Jerusalem, are saying, we're not going to fall into any kind of issues because we have the temple. We're not going to fall to, Jer- to to Babylon. We're going to be safe because we have the temple. They might even point back to Sennacherib invading some, you know, 100 years or so before, 90 years before, and say, look, Sennacherib tried it too, and the Lord turned him away because we have the temple. They, they have an argument on their side, and it's true. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord said, I'm going to put my name in the pl- in this place. He doesn't say Jerusalem yet, but I'm going to put my name in this place, and where I put my name, there I will reside. They've got a decent theology for this temple of the Lord idea. You know, Babylon's not going to conquer us because we have the presence, the sanctuary of God in our midst. And yet Jeremiah really, I think, brilliantly points out that's never been true before. You can't just point at a building, right? Um, So I think as we look for modern-day talismans, modern-day pious superstition— we have to recognize, as with the ancient audience, we might be pointing to things that are good in themselves, right? The things that, things that are—we we even have a decent theology for why we're doing it, and yet really have the wisdom and the spiritual discernment. And again, I point out the psalmist saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. You see, you show me the hurtful ways. And I think we have to be able to do this too. So in the Christian church, we could point towards— um, 
you know, uh, maybe political party. There are those, I know probably not your listeners, but there are those in the, in the Christian church today that when they talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's very interesting. It's something that happens on Sunday, usually those conversations. But if you really want to get them engaged, you know, bring up politics, okay, or bring up something outrageous that happened that week in popular culture. And then you'll see them get really engaged. And that's when I think you can start to discern where are the pious superstitions? Where are the things that look honorable? They look as if they are um, really assuring for us uh, our salvation uh, instead of the actual gospel, the actual saving faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And I think it can be politics. Um, I do think as someone who operates in a, in a very academic environment, I know that being the president of a seminary and being a professor at a seminary gets me a certain amount of leniency in the broader Christian world around me. I know that I will, I will kind of be assumed to be a good, solid Christian guy just because of my job, and I have to be careful about that. And pastors do too, right? You know, and so do Bible study leaders, and so do fathers and their families. You, you might get, you might think that you get a pass because of your position in your community, and that can provide opportunity for that inner, that inner rot, you know, that inner, un, inner unbelief that can eat you from the inside out. I, I don't think it's a, I, I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus' most passionate. Uh, opponents are the religious leaders of his day who had used their social and religious status to, um, you know, to really kind of put them, put themselves in a special category where they're not responsible for their actions. And as Jesus points out regularly, you know, you, you, you act as if you're being righteous with Corban, you know, for instance, he gives that example where you're, you're built, you know, you're giving all of your money away for, or dedicating it to this, uh, consecrated ends. And yet you really kind of know you're just building up your own religious 401k program, you know, and, and they got a pass and everyone thought that they were being righteous and being faithful. And yet they're really using these as kind of get out of jail free cards. And we don't get those in the Bible. All we have is our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way out of jail. Everything else, everything else is, uh, is pious superstition. And, um, yeah, I think it'd be theology. I can think, I think it can be social status. I think it can be wealth. Uh, living in a, you know, here I am, I have to do a lot of fundraising and I end up at a lot of fundraising events. And you, uh, you have to be very careful not to treat wealthy people differently than you treat other people. I think there's a reason why in the Old Testament and for Jesus himself, there's this emphasis on not showing partiality, uh, not putting the rich person in the highest spot. But man, I'll tell you what, if you're a nonprofit and you're relying on those gifts to keep the doors open, that's a real temptation. So we have to be careful about those kinds of superstitions that I think we say are either pious or they're at least understandable. And we have to be careful about that because it really can cover over unbelief and real spiritual deficit. You're absolutely right. And and, and maybe uh, there's some listeners tuning into the podcast right now who, like me, frequently um, regard ordinary means of grace in a, in a way that could be identified as pious superstition. I I mean, there have been Lord's Day mornings and evenings when I have gone uh, into the Lord's house, not with delight, not with thanksgiving, but out of just a, a sense of bare obligation, and even worse, a sense of, if I do this, God's going to bless me this week. If I don't do this, I'm going to be in for it. 
And yeah. and really, that's that's not what God's about. God's interested in the heart. He does. He delights not in sacrifices. He delights in in in, in a, a contrite heart and um, and a spirit that is rightly ordered. And and you know whether or not you wake up at four thirty in the morning to to get in uh, you know your hour and a half long Bible reading uh, doesn't put you in a different standing with God. Is it a good thing to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, will yeah. will doing it make the rest of your day better? Ordinarily speaking, yeah. But is it some kind of magic trick? No. Right. <laughs> and and right. that's that was really a, a helpful part of your book, diving into that idea of pious superstitions. And I and I think that's a good turn of phrase as well. Yeah. Now it's connected to idolatry. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's connected to idolatry. And then I would point out. The reason why we want the magic, the reason why we want the talisman is because we can control those things. You know, I can control my quiet time. I can control going to confession. Okay, I'm using Roman Catholic settings. I'm obviously sort of you know, thinking that that's sort of a radical expression of it. I can control going in and participating in the ordinary means of grace to a certain extent. I just got to go and show up, right? Whereas the call to have a contrite heart, the call to walk humbly before God— you know, that's hard. That's that's really having to rely and to surrender and to turn myself over to the Lord to, to say, you know, Lord, you fix me, right? You, 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 you fix this thing. It's out of my control. I can't force these things to happen. And that was the same temptation for legalism. I mean, rather idolatry in the Old Testament. I mean, that's why you would want to worship a Baal because he is the god of the thundercloud and you're relying on the thundercloud for your crops to grow. And there's very particular things you can do at the Baal Temple in order to bring about better crops, right? Yahweh wasn't that way. He said, I'm the God of everything. You know, I don't have just, I don't, I don't have little jurisdictions like crops or, you know, thunderclouds or the, you know, the, the, the patterns of the tides, you know, on the Mediterranean. I, I, I rule the whole world, okay? And when you come before me, you, you don't do these kind of special sympathetic uh, you know, magic rituals in order to get me to do the thing you want me to do. And yet that's what we all gravitate towards because, uh, you know, ultimately because of sin. But I think it's easier and it's something that we can control and it helps us exert control in our lives um, where we should be trusting in the Lord. That all, I think, ties into another section of your book that is important that I really want to get to, and that is how you talk about felt needs versus deepest needs. Uh, the Spirit of God works through our felt needs to bring sinners to acknowledge their deepest needs. You get into that in the book. Specifically, though, how do the miracle accounts of Mark 4 and 5, where Jesus addresses felt needs to hit at deepest needs, showcase the power of God in making and remaking his creation whole? Yeah, well, the idea of felt needs, you know, I really bring it up in the, the Mark sections, you know, Mark 2, Mark 4, and 5. In each case there, you see a person or you see a situation, a group of people, where if you were to ask them what's the problem, they'd tell you one thing. And yet in each case, if you were to ask Jesus, because he's present at each one of these events, if you were to ask Jesus what's the problem, he'd tell you wholeness or he'd tell you basically me. The problem is they don't have me. I'm going to come and bring the redemption, the solution that they need. And that's where I make this distinction between the felt need. In other words, the thing that the person thinks is the greatest problem or their greatest lack or that one thing. And, and I'm sure you or, and I and, and your listeners have experienced those moments in life where you're like, if this one thing could change, um, everything would be okay. 
right? If I could change this one thing about myself, maybe it's a personality flaw or something, you know, something about how I look or, you know, my social situation or financial situation or something. If I could just change that, everything would be okay. And yet Jesus comes along and he uses that felt need to address um, what I call the deeper need. So in the case of Mark 2, you have this man who's been a has some kind of some kind of paralysis, some kind of lameness all of his life. You can imagine living in first century AD, um, you know, as a Roman colony. You can imagine life was hard already. If you had to depend on people to carry you around to get you food, to get you water, to clothe you, to dress you, to help you relieve yourself, all of those things. You can imagine how difficult this man's life was. His whole life. This was probably the thing where he said, if, if it just wasn't for this, everything would be okay. And yet, when his friends bring him before Jesus and they lay him down in front of Jesus, Jesus walks up to him and he does this really, I think it, uh, you know, it's, it's almost humorous uh, in the way Jesus approaches him and says, your sins are forgiven. And you know, everybody there, including the friends and the paralyzed man are saying, okay, but that's not why I came here. Right. That's that's not what I came to do. I could I, I would have gone to the temple if that's what I was looking for. I'm looking for healing. Right. And yet it's because of that lack. It's because of that loneliness, that life, that that lifelong suffering up until that point that he's able to come before his savior in the only way that is fitting for any of us to come before the savior. Totally impotent laying there with the inability to save ourselves. And Jesus comes and perceives his heart and says, son, he says, son, it's beautiful. Son, your sins are forgiven. And we often forget that the suffering in this life is we're thinking through suffering and we're, we're, we're participating in what the theologians call theodicy. We're trying to justify faith in God in light of suffering. We forget that it's often if not always through our suffering and our felt needs that we actually come to God in the way that's appropriate. Okay. The same thing happens in that boat in, in Mark 4, 35 and following where there's this storm and it really is Mark and uniquely amongst the synoptic gospels, the other, you know, Matthew and Luke, Mark really points towards the Jonah story, at least the Greek of the Jonah story. So the Septuagint translation of Jonah in his account and he connects all the language up, the same kind of storm, same kind of wind. Jesus picked him sleeping in the boat. Uh, they wake him up with a rhetorical question. Don't you care that we're perishing just like the captain of the boat wakes up Jonah? Don't you, uh, you know, he says, what is this to you or something? He says, and then he gets him up to come out and, and, and draw lots with everyone else. Um, it also says in the Jonah story and in the Mark story that as the storm is rising, that the people are filled with phobia. This is one of the few times I actually use the Greek with people who may or may not know Greek. He says they're filled with phobia. And also in both cases, after the storm is calmed, it says they're filled with mega or megalophobia, right? They're more afraid after they get their prayers answered than they are before because they see the power of the Lord. Now, of course, Mark is saying, Where's the power of the Lord in the Jonah story? Well, it's in the God of the heavens and the earth. Well, where's the power of the Lord in my story? Right? And it's with Jesus. Jesus is the one who can stand up and rebuke the wind and the waves on his own authority. He doesn't have to ask the Father to do it. He just does it. Um, and you see the people, are, the, the disciples are filled with more fear than they were before. You know, again, in that case, their felt need is, Jesus, don't you care? We're perishing. We're going to die. And then they realize they're standing and they're, they're, they're floating, as it were, in the presence of the creator God. 
and they realize, wow, our view of the world before um, wasn't in, in anywhere near as large or expansive as our view of the world now standing here with Jesus Christ. So in each one of these cases, then the same thing happens with the demon-possessed man when, when he is approached by Christ. The primary concern of the demons really is, um, you know, why have you come to persecute us before the given time, they ask to Jesus. This man, again, like the man in Mark 2, is almost completely impotent. He's a lacking agent. He doesn't do anything. He's controlled by the legions. He's then put in his right mind. Um, it's only at the very end that it says that he told them all that the Lord had done for him. Um, but really, he's, he's again someone who is being sort of acted upon, and yet Jesus comes, and in his suffering, Jesus speaks through it all and puts him, as Mark says, in his right mind. He restores him, casting out the demons and restoring the man to a place of what I would say is a kind of wholeness, okay? You know, again— these these felt needs that we have in our lives, whether it's wounded relationships, illness. I have a very good friend right now who's fighting a particularly aggressive form of cancer, and I'm talking with him and getting to see him and, and experience this with him. And it's really, really hard. And yet I also realize that it's in that kind of suffering that I'm brought before God in a way that that is appropriate. And so those felt needs become opportunities for us to have our deepest needs met. I have two more questions that, that dive into some big themes, and you, we can tackle them as quickly as you want, because I know you've spent a lot of time with me already, and, and I so appreciate that. But in your chapter, Glory That Consumes, Wholeness Illuminated, you make a point to develop a substantial, if necessarily brief, biblical theology of light. And I want to get into why that's important for the aims of your book, but first I want to give uh, our listeners a little bit of bite-sized chunks of that chapter. On pages 112 to 113, you say that lies about Jesus Christ, so falsehoods about Jesus, quote, present a kind of spiritual darkness, a lack of the presence and favor of God. They are the lies that blind. And another book I'm reading now, I'll be interviewing the author next week, uh, makes the point that uh, good leaders come up with memorable maxims, and that's uh, definitely a memorable maxim, that uh, the, the lies about Jesus are the lies that blind because they present a kind of spiritual darkness. And then you go on later and you make a reference to something that all of us in the Palmetto State are very familiar with, and that is that <laughs> the things of the dark hate the light, and heresy is a Palmetto bug. And I know if my friend Mel Duncan at Second Presbyterian Church is listening to this, he just guffawed uh, with a big old belly laugh because uh, it's true. When you turn on the light, those Palmetto bugs down here, basically cockroaches, what we in Philadelphia would call water bug, they scurry away uh, to find the darkness. And, be, and I love that heresy is a palmetto bug. But on pages 118 to 119, you bring in a more solemn South Carolina reference. And, and that's when you discuss the 2015 massacre of nine dear Christian brothers and sisters during a Bible study and prayer meeting at Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'm sure all of our listeners remember that horrific occasion. And uh, maybe even remember where they were when they heard about it. How might we shine the light of Christian wholeness in dark times? And why is it important for us to think about wholeness in relation to a biblical theology of light? John, the gospel writer and apostle, um, 
uses this idea of light to give expression to what I would say is basically the same thing that Moses is giving expression to in Deuteronomy 6 that we see elsewhere in the prophets referred to as shalom. And we we didn't go into that as much here, but shalom really is about a kind of fullness or full expression or completion. Um, You know, the light language that John uses is an idea that he's drawing from obviously all the way back in Genesis one, you know, light is necessary for life. And then as you keep going through redemptive history and you see how God is revealed, he's often revealed as being sort of the source of light. He's, he's this radiant light. He's the term glory. Even I'd say it's it's sort of its core is referring to the radiance around God. Um, When Moses goes to meet God on the mountain, remember he comes down and there's this, Again, somewhat humorous scene where he he's got some kind of artifact of this glory presence on his face, and we don't know what that is. But what we know is that when the people saw him, what did they say? They say they basically said, "Put a bag over your face." Right? We we don't want to see, we don't want to be that close to the glorious radiance of God. And why is that? Because it would consume you. I mean, that's, that's the problem with God's radiance. It'll consume you. He is holy. You are not. You will be consumed in it. This is why the, you know, the priests come running out of the tabernacle when it's filled with the presence of God. It's a consuming light. And so when you want to give expression in the Old Testament to God showing his grace to you, you say that God's light shines on you, but you're not destroyed by it. Okay. As a matter of fact, think about the Aaronic blessing, the blessing that's given to Aaron uh, uh, for the congregation. The Lord, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And then in the Hebrew, it's may the light of his face shine upon you. Okay. And what? And he be gracious to you because this is a consuming light. So you know that God is showing grace to his people when his light shines on them and they're not consumed. Um so God's presence, God's glory, God's grace is sort of registered in this idea of light so that when, you know, for instance, in the exile comes, uh, when it comes to the northern kingdom in 722 and Samaria and Damascus fall, Isaiah refers to those people living there as living in a time of night. Remember the, and when he's talking about the restoration, he says that night won't last forever. This is Isaiah 9, which are people are commonly talking about these days during in the Christmas season, where he says, uh, you know, the people who lived in darkness, who are the people? The people in Zebulun and Naphtali in the region of the Galilee. The people who lived in darkness have seen a great light. The, the salvation is going to come back. The light will return even to the northern kingdom. But while they're in exile, it'll be like a darkness. And of course, when Jesus comes, you know, Simeon stands up and says, here he is. Here's the light. Here's the glory of Israel, the light of revelation to the Gentiles. When Jesus walks back into uh, into the northern kingdom after the temptations in Matthew, it goes in and Matthew says, this is to fulfill. The lights come back to the northern kingdom. Those who lived in darkness have now seen a great light. So Jesus being the light is not just Jesus sort of shines light on things that are hard to understand and now we can understand them. For John and throughout the scriptures, Jesus as the light is God's presence, both in consuming power and in his grace. So if you're a person of the light, then you can be in the presence of Jesus in the gospel. But if you're not, 
you're like those palmetto bugs, right, that you mentioned. And that was from my experience. I, I've experienced those palmetto bugs living in Charleston for a few years in high school in an old house that was not very well sealed, I used to say. My mother always makes me correct – always corrects me when I tell the story that she says, tell them that it's not because the house was messy. Okay, So for the record, it's not because the house was messy. Uh, it was because we lived in the in the Carolina Low Country. But you'd go down into our kitchen and flip on that light and those bugs would just flee as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, for John, being a person of the darkness, being one who is not united in Christ, who is in opposition, one of those people for whom, as Paul says, when they hear about Christ and they meet followers of Jesus, they smell death. They smell their own judgment and death. For those people, the light of the gospel really is this powerful, um, you know, uh, you know, it, it's, it's this powerful rejecting agent. You know, it pushes them away. And we have to remember that when we have heresy and error arise in our churches or in our communities, we need to remember to have clear articulation of the gospel. Um, one of my colleagues, Chuck Hill, argues that the reason why the gospel of John is written really is to highlight some of the heresies that were developing in the community where John was serving, and that he writes the gospel in order to highlight some of these, some of these errors. So we need to be sure about the gospel and be proclaiming it. We need to be people who reflect and refract, I mean, it's probably a better word, that light of Jesus through our own lives and the light of the gospel so that error and unbelief scatters like those palmetto bugs. Um, but I think we also you know, have to recognize that if we are people of the light, it means that we're going to be shining in darkness and the darkness really does hate the light. Um, and that example from uh, the Mother Emanuel AME Church shooting, to me, was just such a vivid example of that, particularly because it happened during a period of time where there are several different horrors taking place around the world in the United States. And I remember that shooting happening, and I think it was, it was two days later, it was on a Friday, that um, the young man who, uh, who did this thing was, was arraigned. And some of the um, some of the family members of the victims and one of the women that was present were speaking to him about it and addressing him in court. And the number of expressions of the gospel that came out of their mouths was just the most beautiful, I think, healing, painful, um, true, just true. There's sometimes in life where you just see truth and it's just apparent right away. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't Pollyannish and it wasn't sort of like acting like it wasn't that big of a deal or life isn't, you know, like life comes and goes or something like that. It was true and painful. And I would say examples of the light just shining in an incredibly dark moment. And for a moment, it seemed like everyone was sitting there. Even on the pages of the Washington Post, we had these expressions of the gospel going out to the whole city, the whole region, the whole nation. And it was really quite beautiful. And I think it's actually one of the reasons why in that event, not to make, not to make any light of it, but in that event, there has probably been more healing in the community around that event than in many of the other events that we've seen around the United States over the last few years. And I think it's because the powerful gospel witness of that Bible study and of that church.
there is a frequent observation made here at Greenville Seminary about Charleston and the history of Charleston. It's a mixed bag history. It was one of the yeah. the centers of the slave trade in the United States. There weren't actually, comparatively speaking, there weren't that many slaves in Charleston compared to the rest of the South in the antebellum period. But that that's where many um, many captives came into the United States and were sold into slavery. And there's a big yeah. market downtown in Charleston. At the same time, it's called the Holy City because uh, yeah. the, the skyline is, is, is just peppered with steeples and, and there's a rich uh, church history there, Presbyterian and otherwise. Um, you know, Mother Emanuel is a major church in the AME, uh, nationally speaking. And Dr. Wilborn, when he takes us down there on the tours uh, for Presbyterian church history, we go to an AME church building and uh, spend some time with brothers in the AME because it, it was it used to be a Presbyterian church, so there's some important history there relating to John Lafayette Giroudot and and others, and uh, and we get a flavor of or a taste of um, the spiritual flavor of Charleston, South Carolina. There, there is something unique about how the gospel has gone forth into a town with such a, a storied history, and um, and I think you get an example of how the light of Christian holiness can shine in dark times and even in a dark place, like the center of the slave trade in um, the antebellum United States. Your comment about Charleston is so true, and it's one of the things about that city. We, we continue to visit there pretty regularly and have a good number of friends there. I think it's it is a it's a true city to use that phrase again, uh, something being true. It's 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 one of those cities that I think really reflects a lot of the ideas that we're talking about here. And you just kind of hinted at that. But even particularly for our tradition, you know, coming out of a you know in a, in a conservative evangelical Presbyterian tradition that owes much of its theological pedigree to the Southern Presbyterian Church, where. You had you know, these you know, doctrines of the atonement that were preserved and taught that are really quite beautiful and devotional to read, and yet it kind of shows that that danger that we have of a pious superstition or that danger of fragmentation and that in the same – some of the same voices that are articulating really a beautiful theology of atonement um, or of justification of Christian gospel are also articulating you know, you know really, I, th- I think, dangerous and at least deeply in error notions about, you know, equality uh, uh, amongst uh, different ethnicities. And so, uh, you know, and some even propagating and and encouraging um, sort of damaging cultural dynamics. And we have to remember, I mean, I think it's so easy for us to look back on that situation, or let's say even go look back on other situations like the Lutheran church in, in Germany in the mid 20th century, you know, and to say, wow, I can't believe they did that. And yet I think the message of the Bible is we are all struggling with those same dynamics. We're all wrestling with fragmentation. We're trying to conceal our weaknesses. We're trying to separate the gospel from other fiefdoms in our lives. And so we can learn from that history, too, and recognize we really do need the grace of Christ to to pull us towards wholeness. I can give a hearty amen to that, as well as give a plug for um, Greenville Seminary's Presbyterian Church History course that we give every January. It's open to auditors and to those who want to take the tours, at, at least with us. And then in August, Dr. Wilborn will be doing a course specifically on uh, Presbyterian um, 
theology, uh, historical theology in the Presbyterian tradition in the American 19th century, when we go a bit more in-depth into some of these difficult questions of what Thornwell called the peculiar institution of the South, and that was of, uh, of slavery built upon kidnapping and, and man-stealing, uh, as well as in, in some of the some of the notable um, luminaries of the tradition, like John Lafayette Girardeau, who ordained the first uh, black man as a ruling elder in the Southern Presbyterian Church shortly after the war ended, in spite of uh, discouragement from some of his colleagues in the Presbyterian Church, like um, R.L. Dabney. And so we get into some of that. We, we seek to explore to really understand those men, to see how it was that they went so far off the mark in terms of a theological anthropology and uh, improper subord- um, subordination of, of certain people to others, particularly based on race. And we also look at um, where they really achieved something exemplary that's worth imitating in uh, in in different areas of doctrine like soteriology and ecclesiology when we talk about the role of church boards and adoption and, and, and different things like that. And so I, if you're interested in those classes, contact us. Now, my last question has to do with wholeness ever after. This is a phrase you use, and you say there are in particular two kingdom tasks, not, not two kingdom tasks, but two... Yeah kingdom tasks uh, that the church is called to do in pursuit of wholeness ever after. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to articulate there is not merely seeing the goal of the gospel as attaining everlasting life for like the most amount of souls possible. Now, that's not to say that that's not a major part of the gospel. That's a major part of our gospel kingdom operation. Uh, And yet I think when we reduce the gospel to forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, we forget a lot of these other issues that we're talking about here, which is like this pursuit of wholeness in our lives today, which is, to be honest, where a lot of the biblical prophets, both in the Old and New Testament, spend their time focusing. They're talking about today. How does this find expression today? And so we have to recognize that that we are about the work of expanding the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, and that includes preaching um, you know, the gospel of atonement, justifications, you know, adoption, um, and, and a progressive sanctification, and yet we're also about the work of um, giving expression to that faith and creating communities and being in communities that give expression to that faith, like, to use an Old Testament phrase, caring for the orphan and the widow and the sojourner, who are, in the Old Testament setting, those who are very clearly disenfranchised. And I know that's a that's a loaded word. Um, you could say disconnected if you'd rather have that. Um, but disconnected from the social structures that would otherwise take care of them, primarily in the Old Testament being family and um, the inheritance of land. Um, you know, that's for Moses in the Old Testament, that's your expression of faith. The Lord says, if you're not doing at least that, Okay, that's the thermometer. If you're not doing at least that, then I'm going to come and do that, and you don't want me to come and do that, right? That's basically what the prophets are, sa- are saying. They're applying Moses and saying, you have not been caring for the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner. So when we're doing that kind of work, when we're expanding these communities of care and of love and of mutual service, when we're loving our neighbor as ourselves and we're creating space in which that can happen when we're, you know, as, as, as Paul says, when we're, we're praying for our secular leadership so they can create a space of tranquility and peace so that the church can flourish, so that we can grow. As we're 
participating. And of course, remember, Paul's talking about a governmental system in which he has absolutely zero role. <laughs> okay, so we can't even say that we're as disconnected from the government as Paul was, given the fact that at least in the United States, we have at least a vote. So we we have these responsibilities as members of the kingdom that go beyond merely preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that brings about forgiveness of sins. And, or, or I should say, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that reduces the gospel down to the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life in the new heavens, the new earth, and recognize that there's more to the kingdom work than just that. And so that's what I try to separate. I talk about populating the kingdom and building the kingdom in the book. And that's what I'm trying to give expression to, this idea of both saving souls, which is absolutely crucial. Okay? And that's the fault of the social gospel and, and early 20th century liberalism. And I'm, I fear it's going to be the problem of early 21st century liberalism, too. I think that's kind of the track we're going, is that we lose the salvation of souls for that other side, that, that work of public righteousness and public faith. Uh, and yet we have to remember there's, we, we're called to both. Okay? We're, we're, not, we're not called to merely um, – save souls. We're also called to live faithful and righteous lives for the betterment of those around us. It's interesting that when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, and he's asked, well, who's your neighbor? He deliberately doesn't use a Judahite. <laughs> he does not say a Judean. He's talking about a Samaritan who's got bad theology about Mount Gerizim. You know, I think we have to remember that. He, he's giving a very broad application to that teaching. And that's part of our kingdom work, too, as those who are serving King Jesus. So when I talk about these two different works, we're, we're leaning in. We're leaning towards our the new heavens and new earth. And we're doing that by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners, and we're bringing about, we're loving our neighbors as ourselves. We're, we're expanding and putting into effect those kingdom virtues in the world around us. And, and, and I think we're called to both of those, and that's how we really give expression to our wholeness in Christ. That's good stuff of the church's mission of, of proclaiming the gospel, but then preparing individual Christians to fulfill their missions of, of bringing those implications of the gospel into every sphere of influence, every area of life to which God calls them. Uh, here at Greenville, we, we tend to like to apply Kuyperian sphere sovereignty when speaking of the roles of, of the, the church gathered and then roles of, I guess you could call the church scattered or individual Christians out in the world um, without necessarily adopting all of the transformationalist um, baggage that comes along with it and, and tends to spiral out into social justice kind of things. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And let me, I mean, I, I would just expand that. I think you can articulate all of that in terms of the means of grace. I mean, the Bible does. The, the, the prophets will say, you know, if you participate in a feast, but you oppress the poor in your town, then the feast is a feast of judgment on you, or a fast rather. You know, the fast is a fast of judgment. It's not a fast that honors the Lord. It's a, it's, it's a dishonoring of him. When Paul says, if you take the Lord's supper without discerning the body, and uh, uh, you know, you're you're drinking judgment on yourself. I mean, th these can be connected very easily to the means of grace. If I'm gathering people into public worship, and yet I know that I have not prepared them or trained them or encouraged them in the service of the kingdom the other six days of the week, then I'm not preparing them for public worship very well, right? So I think we can do this in a way that's very, you know, that, that's um, you know, very cognizant of the role of the means of grace 
in the life of the institutional church. Yeah, Scott, I really appreciate your time. This has become, I think, the longest podcast episode I've recorded in <laughs> the year and a half to two years that I've been the podcast host, but I think it's been a really good episode. And though The Wholeness Imperative is a short book, it's we short and, book. and this has been a... You could a, have just read it. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And this has been a long interview. We have not covered everything worth uncovering in the book. And so, again, I reiterate that I highly recommend this book to our listeners. I don't get paid for this. In fact, I gave my copy of the book to the library here at Greenville to put it into circulation for our students and future students' use and benefit. But I would recommend The Wholeness Imperative. It's published by uh, Christian Focus Publications, um, which has a strong relationship with Greenville Seminary and our faculty. And again, Scott, I really thank you for your time. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Zach. It's great being with you. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.